What, you gonna smell the microphone? Give it a good sniff. Hey, sniff. <laughs> good boy. That was a very good sniff. I hope you all enjoyed that audio. Yeah, it's killing me not to get my sixth tattoo because I want to get the story of Hades and Persephone. Oh. On where? Wait, click it. Oh. Do the thing. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just our ASMR opener. <laughs> it's just sniffing and <laughs> opening well, games. I'm regarding the story, like here, like not necessarily like human figures, but like something to represent the story and the pomegranate seeds. Oh, okay. I was like, are you going to get like people? Okay. No more people. Oh, but Magatha has decided when I come home from the gym, it's the perfect time to just sit and rub herself all over my shoes mm-hmm. hard. I don't know why she does it. I'm not near people at the gym. Because it smells like you. Then why doesn't she do that to me? Because, like, when you sweat, that's, like, your mo- Like, it's more you. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's more concentrated because it's more of your, like... Oh, yeah. She was hungry this morning, so she jumped up on top of me in bed trying to get food. I had been laying with my arm back like this. Mm-hmm. She lay down right here across my armpit. Oh. I'm like, can you not? Like, that, that, that wasn't comfy. <laughs> yeah, that's why um, that's why cats and dogs like shoes is like because it smells your feet. Excrete the oil. It smells like you, especially when you sweat. Excrete. What? I don't like the word excrete. Excrete. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's worse than the word moist because I find the word moist funny because it creeps everyone out. I'm fine with it. I don't care. It creeps out. My mom hates that word. So one year for Christmas, I'm just going to get her a mug that says the word moist in a bunch of different fonts. <laughs> Why don't you like the word excrete? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. All right. <laughs> Alright, so what's our topic today? Guns. Have you ever shot a gun? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Like... Have you? Yeah, for fun, or like... Yes, for fun. (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) I went to a shooting range. My dad taught me to shoot his um, 12-gauge rifle. Oh, okay. Shotgun. Wow. (laughs) You're good. (laughs) I I shoot the guns. (laughs) (laughs) I know, sometimes I'm like, man, I know know guns, and then I don't know anything. (laughs) No, it was a 12-gauge, I think, Browning over under. That was the first gun I had ever seen in person, really, Mm -hmm. and the the first one I ever touched. So my dad made sure he taught my sister and I. I think I was in middle school when we went to the shooting range, but my dad made sure before we even got to the shooting range, he sat my sister and I down and said, look, this is in the house now. This is the safety. I'm just letting you know. So that way you don't stumble upon it and try to play with it because, unfortunately, people... There's a lot of accidents. Yeah, and then my family just took a handgun class. Okay. My mom didn't grow up with guns, but my dad did. Mm-hmm. My mom was kind of hesitant for the shotgun at first. Was your dad a hunter? Or just... No, he grew up in Indiana. Oh. Kentucky. Okay. Just countrymen. Yeah. <laughs> the Midwest, <laughs> if you but will. I was kind of worried about shooting a handgun. She shot the 9mm and then looks mm. at my dad and goes, when can we come back? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't like how loud it is, but I feel you like... Other... Plugs 
I know. I've been to one shooting range before. Like I've I went twice, but I've been to the same shooting range. It's in indoors, and I feel oh, like wow. if it was outdoor, it would be better. But it's because the noise is all, and it's just so loud and. Both of the ones I've been to have been outdoor. Yeah, I feel like outdoor would be better, but indoor it's like everything's vibrating. Yeah. Yeah, but I I went. Um, my ex was had a gun face. I don't know if that's that's probably a red flag. Not necessarily. <laughs> he had a gun face, and he bought himself for his birthday a six hour nine millimeter I mean, handgun. I'm asking my parents for a shotgun for Christmas. Oh really? It's so much fun to go shoot to go shooting clays. Oh, okay. I what's a clay? It's like the little round clay disc. Oh, it, okay. They shoot it into the air, and, and then you have to work on your aim and hit it. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to take you there one day. I have really good aim for someone who's, <laughs> who's like never really shot a gun because my ex was like really into guns, like more on the research side. Like the first time that we went to the shooting range together was his first time at the shooting range too. And I was a really good shot. And he was like, how are you so good at aiming? And I was like, I, I don't know. I just look at it like, <laughs> with my eyes. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> But um, he was not very good, so I hope he never has <laughs> to use his gun. Okay, Curtis is a very good shot. He was an Eagle Scout. And yeah. And on, like, the bullseye paper, he still has his. It's, like, all, like, right in the center middle circle, like, just this big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mom won the, uh, she was in the military. She won the Marksman Award for two years in a row when she was there, so don't ever. My dad her. and I joined a father-daughter contest for skeet shooting or clay shooting. Mm -hmm. We got third place. Oh, nice. Yeah. It so. was for my high school. <laughs> Catholic high school having a shooting. That's, that's kind of funny. Um... But yeah, I didn't grow up with guns at all. Like I had never really seen a gun until I was an adult, but it's, I, I get the appeal. I, I wish it was less loud, but I understand the appeal. <laughs> it's uh, easier outdoor. Yeah. Indoor is like a whole different thing. So we're, we're going to talk about guns today. Guns and going to talk about uh, guns. And you <laughs> so let's talk about Forensic ballistics and gunshot wounds. So we're gonna start with talking about gunshot wounds, specifically how they appear on autopsies, and then we'll go into actual forensic ballistics and the science behind that. Okay. So when conducting a autopsy of a gunshot wound victim, pathologists have to determine the direction and the distance of fire, the manner of injury, and the nature and the type of firearm that created the wound. When a bullet enters the body, it creates what's called a permanent cavity, and then the surrounding tissues, nerves, and vessels that can be affected by this are called the temporary cavity. That's why sometimes the wounds look a lot bigger than the actual size of the bullet. Temporary cavities may experience forces of acceleration, shear, stress, stretch, and compression. So if you've ever seen a gunshot wound on somebody, it looks pretty gnarly, or more so around the bullet than the actual path the bullet takes. And that's because of those forces. And pathologists also have to identify entry and exit wounds to know where the gunner might have been standing in relationship to a victim. So if it's behind them, in front of them, to the side of them, and stuff like that. So entry wounds are generally smaller. They're more regular and they look like a perfect little circle. And they can be surrounded by 
a abrasion or a tear and they might often have a grease collar which is the lubricant from the bullet that creates like a, a circle around the actual wound and then in contrast exit wounds tend to be a lot larger and more regular and they often look like like starburst shapes where you'll see the actual like skin tearing on the outside pathologists determine distance by looking around the wound if the gun was shot from close contact there will be a muzzle imprint which is the shape of the actual barrel on the skin it's like a burn almost and that will be at around the entrance rune where the bullet goes through at near contact flame burns will appear on the skin and soiling and tattooing will be present at mid and intermediate ranges so flame burns are like that that initial gunpowder blast like, like the okay, i was about to ask about that yeah those are the little like uh cinders <laughs> that will fly and they'll hit the skin and soiling and tattooing are kind of like black speckling that's like the and it can look like ash residue that's okay, also heard that referred to as stippling i think yeah there's a couple different words that are for tattooing it tattooing is the most common i think yeah tattooing is the most common and then that's also kind of like that's the like smoke and gas around it and then there's also like unburnt particles and metal scraps that can be embedded into the skin around the entrance wound and that that helps identify whether it's ent entrance or exit mm -hmm. and then the type of firearm will also determine the type of wound pattern that will show up. So firearms are typically classified into two categories. There is rifles and smoothbore firearms, which are also the which are shotguns basically. Is that basically long guns? Smoothbore firearms. Be your long your long guns this okay. shotgun style. Because your rifles are gonna be your revolvers, pistols, automatic rifles, and then your shotgun type guns are going to be um, the cartridge guns. So with, with the rifle firearms, they usually release one bullet at a time that shoots in a clear path. If you think about how 9mm cartridges are loaded or any sort of like revolvers, they spin. They have, I don't know how many are in the chamber, six. Depends. I think it depends. I think six or eight. Yeah, something like that. And then <clears throat> it rotates. So one bullet at a time that's fired. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, the smoothbore firearms are shotguns. They have a cartridge that shoots out, and that cartridge is filled with pellets, and it disperses once it enters the cavity, which often causes more damage. And this is why if you're a hunter or if you ever go hunting, you never want to use a shotgun to kill an animal because it will destroy the meat of the animal. You want to use a rifle type gun. It's because like, isn't it like the little shots in the cartridge will just go everywhere? Yeah, they scatter and it looks like really crazy on x-rays and stuff. So if you were ever to use it for actual game hunting where you were gonna eat the meat, it's really, it's really bad for the animal because you're gonna destroy all of the possible food. So that's why you use rifle style guns when you go hunting. I've known most people use shotguns just for not that but like going to like a shooting range yeah i'm not really sure what the other practical use is for that what i can do is on the instagram actually i have a video of me and as a senior in high school shooting my dad's shotgun i can put that on the instagram if that would if that'd be something people are interested in seeing yeah that'd be kind of cool to also, see I just text my parentals um christmas idea for me my own gun and my dad just sent the laughing emoji oh <laughs> That's funny. It's worth a shot. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> yeah. 
The shotguns also produce abrasions and contusions on the skin near entry wounds due to the smaller multiple projectiles entering the cavity. So they'll create a bunch more like bruising and scraping on around the actual wound. So now that we know what that looks like, I won't actually upload any pictures of it on the Instagram unless you want to. It's kind of gory, some of the... Yeah, gunshot wounds are usually gory. Yeah, so I won't upload pictures, but just just, just imagine. If you, you want to Google it, you look can. look them up. Like we can give you like the terms that you can use to find specific pictures, but Instagram won't let us post yeah. pictures like that because it's, it's against their policy. Yeah, but if you want to look it up, just look up gunshot wound, and then you can look up either entry wound or exit wound, and it'll show you the difference between what those two look like. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into forensic ballistics. So the examination of evidence relating to firearms at a crime scene by studying ballistic speed, mobility, angular movement, and the effects of projectile units is what forensic ballistics covers. The father of forensics ballistics is Calvin Hooker Goddard, who was a forensic scientist, army officer, academic, and researcher. (laughs) And forensics ballistics is used to determine the type of gun used, the correlation to other possible crimes, the amount of damage inflicted, the position of the shooter, the angle of firing, when it was fired, the impact of the bullet, and possibly the shooter's identity. Yep, that's what all of our investigators and detectives have to do every time we get a shooting call. Mm-hmm. So we actually, for the Ebor City shooting, we sent deputies to... That shooting happened, I don't know if I told you, five blocks from my work building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I came to work, we were putting out a bunch of deputies to help the, office, the TPD officers, just in case they needed an extra set of hands, like traffic control. Yeah. Yeah. Doing all that investigative work. They, have to, they had to do so much because it was a huge scene because it was like in the streets. Mm-hmm. So they had to try to do all of that in public where, pe- where people were going and walking around. Yeah, that makes sense. That's okay. <laughs> there are four types of forensics ballistics. Internal ballistics, external ballistics, terminal ballistics, and transitional ballistics. Internal ballistics is about the motion of the projectile into the bore of the weapon, so like what the bullet is doing inside the gun. External ballistics is the motion of the projectile from the muzzle to the target, so once it leaves the gun but before it hits the target. Terminal ballistics are the wounds, and transitional ballistics are the motions of the projectile from the time it leaves the muzzle until the pressure behind the projectile is equalized. So basically, if you're shooting at a person until the bullet stops. So that's the whole path of it. In ye old times of yore, barrels and bullets were handmade by gunsmiths, so each firearm was unique, and they always had some sort of unique impression on it, or like a signature... Kind of like artists would sign their paintings, gunsmiths would make their guns unique for each case. And then, so in 1835, Henry Goddard applied the ballistic fingerprinting to link a recovered bullet to its culprit. So he found a bullet at a crime scene that had a defect, and it was not a result of the barrel or the impact, it was an actual manufacturer's error. And then because of that, he then concluded that the shooter had to be the manufacturer of the gun itself. And that if he could get a mold of the bullet, he would be able to find the shooter. 
So then he found a matching mold at the shooter's home, and then that proved as crucial evidence to convict the shooter. Was it like a defect in the mold itself? Um, yes. Right. So like it was something where probably just oversight on making it or just okay. didn't lack of attention to detail, and that's what got the person. And when, because they raided the home, and then they found like molds that all had the same type of defect in a batch. Okay. So then in 1860, Regina v. Richardson showcases another example of this. Before cartridges existed, newspaper wadding was used to seal bullets and gunpowder. And wadding was found in the wound of a victim that matched the wadding in a shooter's two-barreled pistol and the newspaper that he had at his home. But then once the mass production of guns began, the concept of magnification of bullets became a new way to do ballistic fingerprinting. In 1902, Oliver Wendell Holmes used a magnifying glass to examine test bullets that he fired into cotton wool to compare the striations on the bullet to those on a victim. I have a quick question about that. Yes. Did, he, did any of the research say why cotton wool or just because it would absorb the impact? Yeah, that was basically it. It didn't really say why. It's probably readily available and it would absorb it. And then in 1912, in Paris, Professor Balthazar took numerous photographs of the circumferences of bullets found at crime scenes and he enlarged those photos to compare them to markings on test fire weapons so that he was able to see like this is what it looks like when it's actually fired into something and then that so this process of magnification became a major way in forensics ballistics and then now there's a new problem which is remembering what a previous bullet looked like when it was not under the magnifying glass because you know back in the 18 and early 1900s labeling was not very good and then this digitized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this major flaw almost led an innocent man to be convicted to death in 1915. Philip Gravel developed the comparison microscope, which are two microscopes connected by an optical bridge that allowed the user to do two simultaneous comparisons. The first to use this microscope was in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929, which identified the weapons as a 12-gauge shotgun and a two Thompson submarine guns. And it was fully accepted by the FBI in 1932. But it's really cool to see because it is like two... It's like It literally looks like two microscopes and there's just one bridge to an eyepiece in the middle. Yeah, I've used a comparison microscope before. Yeah, they're really cool. Because when you're not using a comparison microscope and you're taking notes, you have to have one eye looking into the lens of the microscope and the other one looking at your notes so you can like go back and forth. Yeah, and that's why it was so hard to do magnification with bullets prior to the comparison microscope. It was a really big forensic discovery. Yeah. Scientific so. discovery. Yeah, so that's just a little history on forensics ballistics. Um, I didn't know it went that far back, so I think that's really cool. I didn't cool. either. Yeah, 1800s. It's old. <laughs> I mean, I know guns have been around forever, but I guess, like... Studying the ballistics, I would have thought that would have been a lot more recent. Yeah, exactly. And um, I guess it'll be interesting to see, again, how it kind of evolves, especially with, like... Because a lot of these talk about the uniqueness of certain things, and now, since guns are so mass-produced... And the fact that new technology shows that pig skin... Um, 
a lot of times if they need to study how I hope I hope you don't have this written down so I'm not stealing your thunder. Oh no no. But um, some investigators will use pig skin and shoot the gun at that because pig skin reacts very similar to human skin, so mm-hmm. you can see how how it affects the skin. I didn't know that. That's really cool. I did not have that written down, but that that's a really cool thing that they're able to study and. Yeah, they also have a specific like gelatin that it's mo- it more realistically reproduces like the internal Mm -hmm. yeah what happens on the inside yeah yeah i've seen some x-rays of like gunshot wounds they look kind of wild they're gnarly i have there's a bunch um i'll have to show you because i think you find it interesting in my blood spatter distribution textbook okay yeah we'll look at it that's cool that'd be interesting all right so let's get into our case we're going to be talking about george reeves and trigger warning for suicide on this one so george reeves was born oh do you know who george reeves is okay he's an actor um he's an older actor uh but he was the original superman okay yes i do yeah okay (laughs) yeah i know oh i know the story i think yeah the very minor details yeah yeah i know i was like the name sounds familiar But George Reeves was born George Kiefer Brewer on January 5th, 1914 in Woolstock, Iowa. And his parents divorced at a young age. He never really saw his father again after that divorce. And he kind of moved around as a child. He lived in Ashland, Kentucky, and then eventually settled in Galesburg, Illinois. And then in 1920, they moved, him and his mother moved in with his aunt in California and that is where his mother met a man named Frank Belesso, and they got married. And then when George was 13, Frank officially adopted him, and then he changed his last name to Belesso, so he was now George Belesso. That's cool, because usually it's the female that changes their last name. No, uh, Fra- uh, George, the kid. George, George's last name changed. I got confused. My bad. No, you're good. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> His parents' marriage lasted 15 years, and then they ended up getting divorced. His mother told George that his stepfather committed suicide, but he didn't find out that he didn't until he was well into his acting career. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he um been uh, probably, like, late teens early 20s when his mom told him that he committed suicide so after high school george attended pasadena junior college and studied acting at the pasadena playhouse and there he met his future wife eleanora needles and i would just like to say eleanora needles is a cool name it is i like that name a lot but it also reminds me of the drag queen sharon needles Oh, <laughs> that's funny. I like that. That they didn't choose that name. That was their given name. Oh. <laughs> I love Eleanor Needles. I love that name. That's a great. It's a great name. Uh, honestly, it's very. It sounds very Hollywood. It does. <laughs> George had his first big break in Hollywood in 1939. He was cast as Stuart Tarleton in Gone with the Wind, and it's it's more of a minor. I've never seen Gone with the Wind, yeah, but it's. Either. It's, it was a minor role that he pl- had, like, one talking scene in with Scarlett O'Hara. And then after that, he was advised to change his last name to Reeves. 
because I guess they didn't like his last name. Uh, I've seen a lot of people that have to do that. Yeah, in Hollywood, it's there are some names that are just easier than others. Yeah, and a lot of people with more foreign and exotic names, so to speak, they have to change theirs to Americanize them more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's pretty common, yeah, especially in Hollywood. After the film wrapped, he and Eleonora got married on September 22nd, 1940. And then after that movie, he returned to the Pasadena Playhouse and got the lead in a play called Poncho. And that led him to being contracted with Warner Brothers. So then for the next three years, he had a lot of minor roles in films. And then 1943 happened, he got drafted for the war. And so he had to leave to go to the war, and then he came back at the end of the war, and he returned to Hollywood, but post-World War II, the film industry was not doing too well, and there was a lot of people that were losing jobs, and there wasn't funding for movies, and he ended up separating from his wife in 1949, and then he moved to New York City to try to find work there. And then in June of 1915, he was... 1915? In June of 1951. <laughs> we're going back in time instead of forward. Wow. <laughs> in June of 1951, he was offered the role of Superman in a television series, which he was reluctant to take due to the uncertainty of television being so new. Because film was the big thing back then. TV was still new and people didn't know if it was going to be as big of a hit, which is ironic in today's really society. <laughs> um, when this series aired, it was a huge hit and George kind of became super famous like overnight. And the first show was called The Adventures of Superman that he was in. He was in a couple spinoffs as well as Superman. ABC, at the time, again, this is also an ironic statement I'm going to say. ABC at the time was a failing broadcast network. And so they bought the rights to the Superman show and started broadcasting it to a larger audience. And that is actually what pulled them out of their almost bankruptcy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, Owen Wilson. <laughs> ka <-chow. laughs> George tried to be a role model in real life, just like his character Superman was for children on TV. And he would not smoke cigarettes when children were near and then eventually quit smoking altogether. And he kept his personal life discreet and out of the public eye, which is, I'm sure back then when there was less celebrities, really hard to do. Um, he also did many charity fundraisers and was the national chairman of the Massathenia Gra Gravis Foundation, which is like a neurological disorder that affects your eyes. Oh, wow. And so this is kind of where the part where all of those things I just said that made him a good guy are not going to be as nice anymore. Um, <laughs> he then began a relationship with Tony Mannix, who was the wife of MGM's general manager, Eddie Mannix. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and she, she never divorced her husband through this whole thing, and they were together for many years. So just oh, no. let, let's keep that in mind while we're, while we're doing this. Oh. Um, so after two seasons of the Superman television show, he was dissatisfied with its pay 
and wanted to branch out his career but because he was so widely known as superman and clark ken it was really hard for him to book any other type of role because people only saw him as superman the only roles that he were able to get were either voice acting roles or roles where he was wearing some sort of full body suit costume or mask where people couldn't see or heavy makeup where people couldn't see his real face so he was having he was struggling so then the show decided to give him a raise that he signed on for another season and i did not write the money number down but i did the inflation conversion from 1957 dollars to today dollars and it was 434 thousand dollars that they gave him and that was for only eight weeks of filming because that's how long they filmed the whole season for so that's a lot of money <laughs> it's also not as much as these big name actresses and actors getting millions yeah i mean now <clears throat> definitely not but back then that That's was that was probably a lot of money that was probably close to top tier dollar for yeah, acting probably. so they booked him on for another season in 1957 and he was scheduled to play superman in a broadway show a traveling broadway show and then in 1958 was when tony and george split and immediately after george announced his engagement to a new york socialite named lenore lemon also another hollywood sounding name <laughs> yeah but <laughs> a lot of affairs yeah just a lot of very curious curious timelines let's put it that way and so George was supposed to set out on tour to go to Australia to perform in the Broadway play, but everything kind of changed on the day of June 15th. So on that day, George and Lenore left George's house at 1579 Benedict Cannon Drive for dinner and drinks. They returned back to the house around 11 p.m. At the time, they had a house guest staying with them named Robert Condon, who was writing a biography on George, and so he was living in, like, their guest bedroom. At midnight, George went upstairs to go to bed for the night, and while he did that, Lenore went to the front door and turned on the porch lights. So, I don't know if you guys do this. I feel like my family might be weird about this, because I googled that, and I was like, was that, like, a weird thing to do? Apparently, <laughs> back then, specifically, I, and also sometimes now, just because of generational behaviors, but turning on a porch light means that you're expecting visitors, or that you are inviting people, like, come on in, we're home type thing. It's like what people do on Halloween. You keep your lights on until you run out of candy. When you have no lights on, it's kind of a signal, like, don't come up right i know i've known that for halloween but i guess i just i've never like thought about it in the sense of like with guests over and like my family we do our porch lights every night so my mom does that too we don't do that here we just turn them on um if i have work the next day since i have to leave at like five five like 20 in the morning mm -hmm. that way i can see where to put the key yeah <laughs> Yeah, but... But I didn't know that piece of trivia. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, but that was, like, a very common thing back then was people only turned on their porch lights when they were expecting guests. And because street lights were not something that was super common back then. So that was why, so that they could see where they were going to park their car. <laughs> <laughs> make sure they're at the right house. Yeah, make sure they're at the right house. <laughs> and then, so, soon after that, two neighbors, William Bliss and Carol Van Ronkel came by the house and I would just so Carol they kind of knew 
like they had met William, total stranger. They don't know who this man is. He just comes to this house, which is super weird. Yeah. And then around 1 a.m., George heard the commotion downstairs because Lenore opened a bottle of wine. They started drinking and talking and socializing, the four of them. So George came downstairs into the living room, visibly irritated, and threatened to throw them out of his house. Which, honestly, me too. I would have done the same thing. Yeah, at 1 in the morning, I would have also done that. And I think this was like a Tuesday. It was like the middle of the week. It was not a weekend. (laughs) George apologized for his outburst and then headed back upstairs. Lenore, Carol, Robert, and William said that they heard George climb the stairs, open his bedside drawer, and heard a single gunshot. William Bliss ran upstairs to find George's dead body on the bed. Police were then called, and when they arrived, Lenore, Robert, William, and Carol were downstairs drinking. So they're still partying as the police are showing up. George was found naked on his bed, feet on the floor, with a single shot in his right temple. So he's like in a sitting position but laying back. So his like feet are on the floor, butts on the bed in like a sitting position, backs on the bed. When I was at the CSI Academy, they said for some reason a lot of people that do try to commit suicide, they would do it naked. Why? Easier cleanup? I don't know. That doesn't make sense. I feel like if I was going to kill myself, I would not want to be naked. Like, <laughs> like I, it's just like you're already in a vulnerable situation of death. Like, I also don't want to be naked in death. <laughs> I'm going to have like 12 shirts on and like a winter coat. <laughs> oh, the opposite. Yeah, the opposite. Like, good luck cutting through all these layers. It's like that one kid that wraps the Christmas present a million times and you're like, when is this over? Speaking of, my sister and I have a tradition where we try to wrap each other's gifts as annoyingly as possible. Like, one year I used a bunch of zip ties and rubber pants around. <laughs> um, this past year she wrapped it a bunch um, and about halfway through there's just a paper of Burt Kreischer that says we're waiting. <laughs> annoying to try to open but it made me laugh so hard i felt bad though because i couldn't wrap hers up in a that annoyingly i will this year good luck hannah but what i did instead was i put one of her gifts in a trash bag box and i said look it's your twin (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that that was really off no you're good that, that feeling, though, is how the autopsy text is going to feel to him. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible joke. Um, so, okay, so they were still downstairs drinking. He was on his bed naked, feet on the floor. Wait, I do have a question. Yeah. He na- was he naked when he went out to yell at them? That We'll get to there. We'll okay. get there. We'll get there. But he, he was fully butt naked, feet on the floor, shot in the right temple laying back on the bed the bullet was found under his body like the casing under his body i mean the nine millimeter luger was on the floor between his feet and the bullet was found in the ceiling and it had blood splatter around the bullet on the ceiling and then according to the coroner's report Quote, the position of Reeves' body on the bed, the angle of the bullet path, and the autopsy findings all point to suicide. So they wrote it off pretty quickly as a suicide. It seems like in a lot of cases that 
sometimes you see that a lot. Yeah, the, it's just like the easiest answer. They're just gonna, you know, let's not dig deeper into this, even though it doesn't really make 100% sense. It does not make sense. On the police report, Lenore joked and stated he's going to shoot himself once George left to go upstairs. And when they heard the drawer opening, she said he's getting the gun out now and he's gonna shoot himself. Okay, that's... I've heard people make jokes like that, like once, uh, but making two... Yeah, in a row. And then, That's like... really... Yeah. Odd. And, like, everybody in the room, because they all reported that she said that. And I don't... Obviously, I don't know the tone, but when the newspapers released that part where she said that, like, immediately the next day, it was like, oh, it was a joke. I was joking. It was a joke. I was kidding. So, I'll, like, you know what I mean? Like... Was it actually joking or was it like, oh, because Reactive. she's... Because it was in the public eye. Right. And she's a socialite, so she has a reputation to uphold. So, I don't know. But let's talk a little bit about the inconsistencies of this because there are quite Please, a few. there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was naked, which I know you said that you were saying that a lot of people are naked when they commit suicide. But either he went downstairs to yell at them naked, which again, why would why didn't nobody in that room be like, hey dude, why are you naked? <laughs> Someone should have at least said, like, put some pants on. Yeah, exactly. Or when he went upstairs, he took off all of his clothes. And some people sleep naked. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I guess like the concept of like It's still odd in this scenario. It's yeah, it is very odd in this scenario to have either one of those scenarios be true because one of them has to be true and either one doesn't make sense mm -hmm. the position of the gun and the bullet in the casing are odd when you shoot a gun like the casing mm -hmm. does eject out of it but to be under the body doesn't really make a whole lot of sense i mean if he was holding it to his temple and he was sitting up while doing it there is the possibility that it ejected out behind him but if the bullet's in the ceiling... Yeah, that makes it a little different. The bullet would be in the wall, like, across from him. Like, he would have to have... Been, like, leaning, leaning over, over like, parallel to the bed and shooting himself. Exactly. And then if that were true, if that were true, how the bullet got in the ceiling, the, the casing, casing would be on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you do it over the there's no one scenario where the bullet can be in the ceiling and the casing under the body. Right, exactly. It has to be one or the other, but having both is, like, almost impossible physically. Yeah. And then the gun itself being between his feet, that's also kind of... Because you shoot yourself... I would think it would either be in your hand still, or it would be next to you on the bed. Or maybe it would have fallen on the floor, but it would be on the outside of your feet, not in between your feet. I... I can't come up with a scenario for that happening with the other stuff, but the only scenario I can think of it happening is like if you're leaning forward, have your head like almost in between your knees, do that, and it falls, but then you would fall forward. Forward, back. exactly. And it's even still in most suicides where people are sitting and shoot themselves, they're more likely to fall forward than backwards based on how people sit. We tend to sit with our, our weight over our toes which would mean our center of mass is moving forward so most people when they do that are more likely to be on their face versus on their back so he would have to be leaning back and then 
the like, like a weird angle <laughs> have a single under. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it doesn't make sense. Like none of this makes sense Mm-mm. to be, you know, like not all of that would have to have been the most weird position to commit suicide in, which would not make any sense why he would do that. Mm-mm. And Another weird thing that had happened was before the autopsy took place, his body was completely washed and embalmed. So there was no ability to find any gunpowder, any residue, or anything else. They washed it. And, like, why would you do that? Especially on someone who's a big Hollywood actor. Then at that point, you would look for the stippling or the tattooing around the wound. Yeah, but it doesn't... It didn't... Like, it didn't mention anything about that, but... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And and if it was, because again, like this is close range shooting yourself in the head. So there would be a muzzle imprint. Yeah. So you would be looking for that. But I think what they were trying to look for was gunpowder residue on his hand. Yeah. But if like to know if he shot it or not. Obviously can't check for that if he's been washed and embalmed. Yeah. So autopsy first. Right. Because even if he was shot, you would still might see the muzzle, but someone could have held it to his head and pulled it, but there wouldn't be gunpowder pr- gun on right. his hand. So some theories that people have come up with, because this is clearly sort of an unsolved case because it doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense. It was written off officially as a suicide, and that's how it's lived throughout its time. Yeah, but it does not sound like suicide. Right. So obviously the first theory is it was a suicide, just a really weird one. I don't believe that one so much. The second one was that he was shot by Lenore, and so Lenore was known to have quite a temper. And in the bedroom, there were two other bullet holes in the floor that were made by the same gun. And when the police asked her about those bullet holes in the floor, she said that she was just fooling around one time and one of them was from an accident. And then she never explained the second bullet hole. But even if she shot him, that doesn't explain why there would be a bullet hole in the floor and the ceiling. No, no, no. They're they're older. The ones in the floors were older. They were previous holes. Well, then if she shot him... I don't understand how she could do it with the bullet ending up in the ceiling. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, unless she was, like, like underneath him, him, yeah. But maybe she was a lot shorter than him, and it was, like, an up angle. Yeah, they would have to try to figure out the angle. Yeah. But then again, but again, if she's, you know, in the 1950s, women were not, you know what I mean, not super big. So could do that. Well, that and, like, they weren't super big, so if he was standing, if, like, they were both standing hypothetically, how did she get him into that position? Unless other people were there to help move him into the position, which it could be a conspiracy of all of them. Especially because alcohol was involved, they were all drinking. Right. But, I mean, like, one female would not be enough Mm -hmm. to do that. And another thing was that... So Lenore was the one who released to the press that they were engaged, but Reeves had not technically proposed to her yet. And so she had been like asking and pushing and pushing and pushing for an engagement. Like, when are you going to buy a ring? Like, when are you going to commit? So a lot of people think that she was also had some anger pent up from his lack of commitment to her because the only person he ever legally married was his first wife, Eleonora. Mm-hmm. So that might be another reason too. But again, the two bullet holes in the floor, and you're not explaining. Yeah, and you're not explaining the second one. That's a little fishy. 
And then the last one was that he was murdered by Eddie Mannix, who is Tony Mannix's husband. And Eddie Mannix was known to have some ties to the mafia back then. Of course. Yeah, because <laughs> what large figure didn't have ties to the mafia back in the 50s? <laughs> Everybody that had power also knew the mafia. They had power. Yeah, exactly. That's how Vegas basically started. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's also a theory, but that he sent someone to put a hit on George. However, though, to do that, they would have had to come around to the back of the house, climb up to the second story, climb into the window, shoot him, and then get out out by the time someone from downstairs ran directly upstairs, which would be pretty difficult to do. And um, also there was not... I think they were saying that it was not like a huge window, so it would be a stretch for a man to, even an average sized man, to crawl through the window type thing. So that's another thing. Also, that's kind of another thing that's kind of suspicious is William Bliss, who is the stranger neighbor that they did not know, mm-hmm. was the only person to get up and go upstairs to check on him when they heard the gunshot. I do have a question. I don't know if it would have mentioned it in any of the reports, but did they hear the gun fall to the floor? It didn't say, it just said they heard the gun shot. Okay. Because depending on the floor and what material it was made of, you could argue if they heard it fall, it could have been him dropping it. But if they didn't, it would someone had placed it. Right. It didn't... We don't know. Well, the floor was hardwood, but it didn't say that they heard it. Because it would make a noise if it was hardwood. So, mm-hmm. But it didn't say that they heard. Okay. But... Why is the stranger the one checking up on him? I don't know. You think it'd be his wife. His fiance, yeah. Or whatever she is. Lover. <laughs> You'd think she would be the one to run upstairs first. Yeah. But the, and even like, and again, even his, his, the guy who's living with him as a house guest to, uh, that's writing his biography, you would think either one of them would be the first ones to go upstairs. No, the complete random stranger. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like it, Yeah. It's, Speaking of the biographer... Were they about to, like, release any big secrets? Not that I could find. He didn't, other than him having that affair that lasted, I think him and Tony dated for, like, almost 10 years. That was, that was a well-known affair, wasn't it? Kind of. Yes and no. It was, people knew about it, but we, it yeah. would have been a bombshell if it was dropped. Yeah, it was kind of like a don't ask, don't tell situation. Okay. So, I think there were people that knew. I think they just kept it out of, like, obviously, Eddie's... Eddie's... Because MGM and Warner Brothers were tied as far as they were attributed with each other in their filming. So, he would have lost his his roles as Superman back then. So, um, I mean, it's possible... You know what I mean? Obviously, Eddie found out about the affair towards the end of it. But... I don't know. It's just it's just very suspicious. And even if Lenore had been the one to kill him, even if it was an accidental fit of rage thing, she's probably there's no way that she benefited from it because she they weren't married. You know what I mean? So she would not have inherited any of his assets or anything like that. And his mom uh, gave a statement saying that it was incredibly unlike her son to commit suicide. So she doesn't believe that it was a suicide thing, but a lot of people also say, like, 
he was pretty and i know like parents want to believe that their kids aren't capable of that they want to believe that they know everything about their kids right but a lot of people were saying that he was pretty stressed about acting and depressed because he couldn't get other roles outside of superman and that he was having financial issues and you know so i mean there is the possibility that maybe it was after all but we won't know for certain but those are the uh those are the theories, and that's the, the case of George Reeves and forensic ballistics. I learned a lot. I thought, forensic ballistics is, that and toxicology are the fields that I know very little about because they're so technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So if you'd like to go see, I'll post some pictures of George Reeves, and um, I'll, I'll post a picture of the gun that, they had back then and um i guess goddard if you want to see a picture of him <laughs> for some fun reason so um, you can check that out on our instagram at live laugh liver mortis and we also have a tiktok if you want to see some more fun light-hearted safety tip fun facts sneak preview content it's at live.laugh.liver with an o-r and if you'd like to email us, you can email us, email us at llivermortis at gmail.com. Yes. So thank you all for listening. And, this and if you, before, we, before we sign oh. off, um, again, you guys can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music. And if you guys do like our podcast, please give us a review. Let us know if we can do anything better. Yeah, we, we love to hear feedback. Criticism. Yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback. So leave us a review. And thank you all. This has been another episode of Live, Laugh, Live, Live or Mortis. Or mortis.